We are up to mitzvah number 84, and today we're going to do mitzvah number 84 and 112, 326, 327, 328, and 329, and this is the mitzvah of Shemitah, Shemitah. This is a very topical mitzvah because Shemitah happens once every seven years. It was in 2001, 2008, 2015, and now beginning 2022, we are now, since Rosh Hashanah, we are in a Shemitah year in the land of Israel. Now what Shemitah is, briefly, there's two components to it. Number one, there is a prohibition against doing work in the field. If you are a landowner, if you have a field, if you have some sort of produce that you grow in the land of Israel, you cannot work on the field for this entire year. That's one general cluster of mitzvahs related to Shemitah. And there's a second component, and that is the release of the ownership of the field. Meaning that for this one year, it's like you don't really own the field, it's ownerless, it's owned by God, human ownership is relinquished for one year. So we have mitzvah number 84, which is the release of the ownership of the field. 112 is a positive mitzvah to refrain from working on the Shemitah year. 326 is the prohibition against working the field. 327 is the prohibition against cultivating the trees. And then 28, 328 is not to reap the harvest. And finally, 329 is not to gather the fruit. So we have six mitzvahs that relate to the laws of agriculture maintenance in the land of Israel every seven years. Now, the name Shemitah, the word Shemitah means to release, and it means to release ownership for the seventh year. Now, there's another concept, or another mitzvah, in this seventh year, and that's a separate mitzvah. We'll get to it in its appropriate time, and that is the concept of nullification of loans at the end of the seventh year. If you lend someone money, the person has to pay you back. However, at the end of every seven-year Shemitah cycle, that is set back to zero and all the loans are annulled. So this is a separate mitzvah. We'll get to it in its appropriate time. Now, the mitzvah of Shemitah is very complex and it's a very broad subject. In fact, there's an entire book of Mishnah called Maseches Shvius, which means the seventh, the seventh year, that covers these laws in detail. But even more so than most books of Mishnah, it's astoundingly complex, the amount of laws that are relevant to this mitzvah. And of course, in our series here on mitzvahs, we're trying to give a brief snapshot, a brief overview of every mitzvah. And it's going to be a little bit of a challenge to try to condense this very complex mitzvah into the time allotted, into the kind of the framework that we're trying to do, but we'll give it a shot. To simplify matters, I want to divide our discussion into three. First, I want to kind of run through some of the basic laws. I've get, again, this is not going to be comprehensive. The comprehensive laws would take us an entire year, at least studying 10 hours a day to cover. So that's the first part, just the basic overview of the laws. Number two, we're going to run through some of the reasons given, what are the underpinnings of this mitzvah. And finally, we're going to talk about some of the practical aspects of actually living life in a country that has all these laws and all these restrictions against agricultural activities every seven years. You know, for 2,000 years, the majority of Jews lived outside the land of Israel. Today, 
the land of Israel is home to more Jews than any other country in the world. And therefore, this is very, very relevant today because you have so many people actually living there, so many farmers, and they are all governed by this mitzvah. And therefore, we're going to talk about some of the practical aspects and maybe even some of the controversial aspects of how this mitzvah is actually observed today. Okay, so let's start with the laws. Just, again, a brief sampling of the laws. We are told that we may not work the field in the land of Israel on the Shemitah year, every seven years. So similar to Shabbos, six days a week, Sunday through Friday you work, the seventh day you must refrain from working. Similarly in the field, year one through six, you work the field, you plant, you plow, you harvest, you reap, you kind of assume ownership of the land. Year seven, you take a year off. Now, the laws are going to be divided into the biblical prohibitions and the rabbinic prohibitions. And again, I don't want to get too technical because it's a little bit, well, it's a lot of bit of laws, but I want to give just the, the basic framework and overview. Today, because we don't have a temple, all the laws of Shemitah are rabbinic, so it's important to note that, number one, but... The laws itself, we always separate the biblical restrictions versus the rabbinic restrictions because there is a very important difference between things that are biblically prohibited and things that are rabbinically prohibited. The things that are biblically prohibited, under no circumstances would you be allowed to do that on the seventh year. Whereas things that are rabbinically prohibited, if refraining from doing that will permanently damage your field, then you may, in fact, do that on the Shemitah year. You could do as much as is necessary, and not more, of course, to prevent the death of a given plant. And those things, like uh, we'll talk about them, like watering the field, etc., things like that, you are allowed to do things that are only rabbinically prohibited, provided that that is what's needed to ensure that the plants don't get destroyed. The four things that are biblically prohibited are planting, harvesting, pruning, and picking the fields. And then once we get to the rabbinic aspect of it, we talk about, you know, applying fertilizer and plucking dry leaves or branches or watering a garden. These are all parts of the laws that are prohibited, but you would be allowed to do that if that is necessary to ensure that the field doesn't get destroyed. Now, just to give you an example of how detailed these laws are, one of the books that I read to prepare for this discussion, it's like a simplification of these laws. And it has an entry on mowing the lawn. So lawn is, you know, you have grass. That's a plant. Are you allowed to mow the lawn on the Shemitah year? So, of course, it's not for food, but this is not necessarily limited to food. Any work in the field is prohibited. So are you allowed to mow the lawn? So this is what it says. This is what the entry on mowing the lawn says. If there is a concern that the lawn grass is going to harbor snakes, because once there's big, lots of grass, there's room for snakes to go there, and that's very dangerous, then you could cut the field. You could cut the grass. If the grass is very thick and you want to mow the lawn to improve the general appearance, well, then it's a whole discussion 
opinions differ. If it is being mowed to improve its general appearance and the grass is thin, then it's definitely prohibited because it's going to improve the quality of the lawn. And regardless of what instance you are mowing the lawn, you cannot mow it as low as you do under normal circumstances. You have to cut the grass a bit higher. So again, this is just such a minute aspect of life, but it kind of gets us into the framework. If you're living in Israel and you have a garden or you have a lawn, your whole life or your whole year is going to be dominated by all these specific laws because you are not allowed to just behave as if you own it under normal circumstances during this seventh year. Now, there are also prohibitions on work done before the seventh year. Depending upon at what juncture of the sixth year work is not beneficial for crops of the sixth year, meaning work done on the field on year six is beneficial for the fruits of year seven, at whatever juncture a given fruit no longer benefits from work for that year, it would already be prohibited to work on that particular part of the field even on year six. So our sages tell us that grain, the cycle of grain, it no longer benefits from work on year six once Pesach of year six hits. Meaning that all the work that you do for the grain from Pesach onward on year six only benefits the fruits of year seven. And therefore working on the field, on the grain part of the field, from Pesach onward would be prohibited. Now again, so we're just kind of giving a brief overview of the laws. The actual details are absolutely voluminous and vast, but I want to kind of just sprinkle in some of the various different subjects that come up. So this law is limited to the land of Israel. What exactly are the borders, the dimensions of the land? That is An enormously complex question because where exactly, you know, does the borders of land of Israel end? We know that there was the conquest of Joshua and all the land that he conquered is kind of one aspect of the land. And then you have the subsequent conquests of David. And then you have a second temple era, the second commonwealth. And what about the areas on the other side of the Jordan, which are part of biblical Israel, certainly not part of modern Israel? What about the land, let's say, south of the Dead Sea, which almost everyone agrees is not part of biblical Israel, but is part of modern Israel? Very complex, and this all gets into the subject of where exactly the field is and what exactly are the Shemitah laws governing that particular part of the land. And again, we're just trying to be as brief as possible to just give the overview of what this means. So we talked about the prohibition against working in the field. There is a second set of restrictions, and that is to relinquish ownership of the fruits of the land. You have to make your field open for all, free for all. You're not allowed to lock your gate. You're not allowed to deny access to your field. Anyone is allowed to walk in. If someone walks in, they're allowed to take fruits. It's, again, not yours. It's ownerless. In fact, you are required to declare it ownerless, but even if you don't declare it ownerless, that is the law. Anyone can walk in and take whatever they want, provided that they don't take more than a week's worth, and you really can't stop them. 
Now, if people are being unreasonable, if they're damaging the trees permanently, then you could stop them. But again, there is a restriction against prohibiting people from taking fruits not yours. Doing business with fruits of Shemitah is another aspect of this law. Again, the fruits must be declared ownerless. You can't do business with them. You can't sell them or buy them. You cannot export them. Under certain circumstances, you cannot throw them out. Again, I'm just giving you a window into an entire universe of living every seven years that actually happens in the land of Israel as we speak. Now, even for us living in the diaspora, the laws of Shemitah may be quite relevant to us because if you're a farmer in Israel, who are you sell- who are you selling your produce to? Well, to the big food manufacturers in Israel. All of them have kosher certification. And therefore, they're not going to buy your stuff if it violates the laws of Shemitah. Because then they won't get their kosher certification, they won't be able to sell it. So what a lot of, let's, let's call them, I guess, less scrupulous farmers do, they work their field in violation of this mitzvah. Those fruits are actually not kosher. This is the one instance where you have fruits and vegetables that are not kosher because work was done on the Shemitah to produce those fruits. And then they ship them to the United States and Brazil and Europe and Mexico and all over the world. And you go to your grocery, you have no idea where the fruits come from. Do you have any idea? You just go and you pick, oh, these look really nice. Check them out. All these fruits look really good. You buy them, it may in fact be not kosher because it came from Israel and work was done to it on the Shemitah in violation of the laws. And now the unsuspecting consumer of the diaspora is actually, is actually eating not kosher because this was produce of the seventh year that was violated. The laws were violated. Again, the details are absolutely vast. We're just trying to get a flavor of this mitzvah. But what's really interesting, where these mitzvahs appear, so they appear several places in the Torah, but most comprehensively, they appear in Parshas Behar, at the end of the book of Leviticus. And the Parsha starts off by telling us that Moshe taught over these laws, the laws of the Shemitah, Behar Sinai at Mount Sinai. There's a very famous comment featured in Rashi, Rashi says, why are we told that the laws of Shemitah were told at Sinai? All the laws were taught at Sinai. Why does the Torah specifically mention laws of Shemitah were conveyed at Sinai? So Rashi says, just as the laws of Shemitah, the general principles and the details and all the minute aspects of the mitzvah were conveyed at Sinai, so too every mitzvah was conveyed at Sinai, the general principles and the details and every minute aspect was conveyed at Sinai. It seems that this idea is telling us that the mitzvah of Shemitah is emblematic of mitzvahs at large. We need to be conveyed a message that all the mitzvahs were conveyed at Sinai to Moshe. And Moshe, of course, passed it on to the Jewish people. Which mitzvah was selected, was chosen to convey this principle that all mitzvahs were taught at Sinai? The one mitzvah that really represents what the goal of all of Torah is all about. The reason why we have mitzvahs 
is to use them as a way to connect to the Almighty. You start off your life and you live in a world and the Almighty is obscured. It's possible to go your whole life and never think about the fact that you have a soul. Never think about the fact that the world has a creator. There's all kinds of very sophisticated explanations to try to obviate the need for a creator. And the whole purpose of the world that man, when we say man, of course we mean mankind, can connect to man's creator, the whole purpose is just ignored by many people. Most people live their whole lives without ever once considering why are you here, who created you, what's the purpose of you being created. And the reason why we have Torah and the reason why we have mitzvos is to wake us up and bond us with the Almighty who created us and to remind us about God. And every day, you know, we have reminders. You walk through a door, you see a little signpost in the door. Oh, remember God. You say the Shema in the morning, the Shema at night. You pray three times a day. Little signposts flashing at you, reminding you about God. And then you have a whole year, an entire year, where your whole life is turned upside down. You're a farmer, right? You're living in an agrarian society. You eat what you produce. And suddenly for a year you're told, oh, not this year. This year you produce nothing. This year you can work on your field, not even a little bit. This year you rely on God. For a whole year, people need to suspend all their activities and rely on God. This is kind of like a super Shabbos. Six days you work, seventh day, how are you going to feed yourself? You're not going to work. How do you expect to feed yourself? Rely on God. Six years you work. The seventh year, you take an entire year off. It's like the pandemic every seven years. One year, everyone's off. A crazy thing. How do you expect the economy to survive? How do you expect people to not starve to death? Remember that we have the Almighty. He's going to watch over us. He'll give us a bumper crop on year six. We'll be okay. But of course, it's very nerve-wracking for us. It's nerve-wracking because we are designed to be able or to, I guess, by default, to not see God in our purview. And this makes us forcing us to live life as if God actually exists. And this is the goal of all mitzvahs, really. And therefore, this is the one that's going to represent. This, this, is one, this is the one that's going to be a stand-in for all the mitzvahs to tell us this important principle. We remember every year, every day, every week, every seven years, that the Almighty runs everything. The earth doesn't produce on its own. It has a supreme master. And that supreme master said, you take a year off. I got you back. I got you covered. Don't worry about it. And you earn reliance on God. Rashi tells us in the aforementioned Parshish Bahar that the objective of Shemitah is that we cease to operate as if we're in charge. We, for an entire year, fully acknowledge that it's the Almighty who's in charge. They tell over a story that two litigants 
came to Rabbi Chaim Volajener, and they were fighting over a property, and each one of them said, it's my property. Another guy said, no, it's my property. So Rabbi Chaim said, let's go to the property. Let me look at the property. So he goes to the property, and he lays down on the ground, and he says, I, I, do you hear that? Do you hear that? It's so interesting. You say the property is yours, and you say that the property is yours, but the property itself is telling me that both of you are mine. So he was saying that, of course, in the context of the fact that we have to recognize that ultimately the destiny of all of mankind is we're going to be planted back on the ground. We're going to be interred in the ground. We're not going to survive forever. But ultimately, the idea is that the Almighty owns everything. Everything from the earth below to the heavens above is all controlled by God. And we forget that. And then we have the Shemitah year to remind us this very, very strongly. And by the way, as I mentioned earlier, the idea of Shemitah applying to money, there is no greater act of recognition of God's control than when we say, all the money that's owed to me, it's completely annulled, we'll start over from scratch. Now, it's also interesting that, you know, the concept of a sabbatical is widely accepted today. The idea, you take a year off, you write a book, you do a research project, you write your thesis, take a whole year to focus on it. Even with respect to crops, there is a concept to allow the earth to replenish its resources, take a year off. But the way it's done today, you go to Nebraska, this concept exists, but they'll do a rotation. Every farmer would divide his, uh, let's say, all of his land into seven and do a rotation. Every seven years or every year, one-seventh of all of his land takes a year off. And that way, it's always constantly being replenished, but there's never a year that you're producing nothing. Yet the Torah tells us to have a sabbatical, not just every farmer, but all the farmers of the entire land, and you will rely on God. The entire land, all the farmers, in an agrarian society where you need food to live, if you don't have food, you're dead. You can't just import it as easily as you can today. The Almighty expects us to do that tremendous leap of faith. And what's interesting about this is that he promises us that he's going to make miracles for us. You do it, I'll make sure that you're not going to lose. And even today, every Shemitah year, there are evident miracles that happened to Shemitah observant farmers. There were many, many examples of this where, for example, one year, 1959, there was a swarm of locusts and it, every Shemitah observant field was untouched and every farmer that violated the laws of Shemitah had all of his produce absolutely devastated. So we still see that the miracles that God promises, even exist today. Now, on a practical level, again, like we mentioned, the details are very vast. The details are complex. 
The consequences of not observing the laws of Shemitah are very serious. We read in Pirkei Avos, in Chapters of the Fathers, Chapter 5, which you read that in our ethics study, that exile comes to the world in punishment of three sins, the three cardinal sins, and not properly observing the laws of Shemitah. This is a cause for exile. Now, Israel has had a you know, a renewal the last couple of hundred years. People moved from all over the world back home to Israel. And they started to observe all the agricultural laws of the land. There are many agricultural laws like the tithing, etc. But this particular law, because it's so vast and complex, and because the demand of faith that it requires is so deep, it's so profound. This law was actually, sadly, either unknown or ignored at the onset of the Jews coming back to land. The credit is largely due to the Chazonish. The Chazonish was the leader of Torah Jewry at the founding of the state. He passed away in 1953. He lived in Israel for 20 years, from 1933 to 1953. And he wrote tremendously about these laws and he kind of created the entire corpus of laws that still followed today. Now, the problem is, and this is where that's very controversial, is that, you know, in the 19th century, there was a very dubious loophole that was adopted by the members of the old yeshuv, the members of, you know, kind of the farmers who moved to Israel. This loophole is called the Hetamechira, which essentially means that you would take the entire land of Israel and sell it wholesale to the non-Jews. And non-Jews don't have the Torah, don't have these mitzvos, and therefore you kind of rent space in the non-Jews farm. And therefore, you find this ingenious loophole to actually work on the field and to violate all the laws of Shemitah in a kosher way during the seventh year. The problem is, is that these sales are a little bit farcical because you're not actually selling it, number one. But also, it's prohibited to sell land in Israel to non-Jews. But nevertheless, this loophole was employed. The Chazon Ish arrived in the land of Israel and he kind of banned this wholesale loophole and he created enough or he formalized enough leniencies to actually facilitate the implementation of laws of Shemitah completely without relying on this, you know, wholesale loophole. You know, in fact, this was at the time before the foundation of the state where the Zionists were trying to lobby for a Jewish state in the land and they were claiming, hey, it's ours, it's ours by right. You can't claim that the land is yours by right and then every seven years sell it to the non-Jews as if it's so easily relinquished. So that's another important kind of component of this is that there have been various efforts to try to make this mitzvah more easily observable 
and some of them are more, or some of the loopholes are more reliable than others. And one of them, the Hatamachir, are very controversial. Even today, you go to Israel and you could see on the grocery, sh- on the grocery shelves, you'd see, you know, two bags of potato chips. They look identical. They probably taste identical. One of them is more would have on it labeling. It would say, you know, this is done via the Hatamachira. This field, it was worked on by Jews year six, year seven, year eight. It's owned by Jews on year six and year eight, but it was kind of kind of sold in quotes. It was sold to non-Jews for year seven in order to facilitate this loophole. And a lot of people rely on it. A lot of people do not rely on it. There is another kind of way that people get around or another kind of general loophole that is present in modern times. That's called Otsar Beisden, which means the warehouse of the court. What this means is that you own a field, you must declare that field is ownerless. All the produce, all the fruits, all the vegetables, they're all and they want to come and seize it, take it for themselves. What are you going to have? You're going to have, you have a big field, you're going to have a million people coming in, rummaging through, making a huge mess, potentially damaging the field for next year. So what they created is a concept called Otsar Beisden, which means the warehouse of Beisden, which basically means that the court is going to oversee and supervise the distribution of the free stuff for everyone. Essentially, they're going to employ people to work the field in the permissible ways in order to allow the distribution of the free fruits to everyone. If you think about it, you know, most of us, I don't know most of us, but a lot of us live in cities and there are not a lot of farms around us. So how would you kind of use this thing? How would you walk in someone's field and take the fruits for yourself? A, there's a problem you may damage the person's field. B, you don't live there. So what the uh, the courts did is that the courts kind of took the initiative to oversee this operation. They would hire people to work the fields in the kosher permissible way and they would take all those fruits and make like a warehouse out of it and then they would transport that and distribute that and they would only charge for the services that they did. They wouldn't actually charge for the produce. So you would actually, in the land of Israel today, you have like these marketplaces where all the fruits are what's called Otsar Beisden. It's again, the warehouse of the court. And you walk in there and the prices are so cheap because they're not charging for the fruit themselves. They're just charging for the work needed to facilitate, to enable people taking the fruits from the ownerless fields. Another major question, like we mentioned earlier, is the exact demarcation of the land where in the land of Israel, the modern land of Israel, the modern state of Israel, is not part of the biblical land of Israel and those places, or exactly where the places are, it's not it's a whole discussion. But if you have a field that's in the modern state of Israel, but not the biblical state of Israel, you would be allowed to work in it because it's essentially considered as if it is the diaspora. If a Gentile actually does own a field, does that produce have the sanctity of Shemitah is a major dispute and there are opinions on either side of that question. The bottom line, we have this amazing mitzvah. 
a mitzvah that represents where mitzvah is supposed to bring us to, a mitzvah of someone saying, ultimately God is in, is in control, ultimately God is in charge. You know, broadly speaking, we say that planting in itself is an act of faith because no one really knows how agriculture even works. How is it possible that, you know, you put a seed in the ground and it starts to rot and decompose and then before you know it, a brand new, perfectly healthy, luscious fruit comes out of the ground? It doesn't make any sense to us. You know, if you think about it, when someone dies, you also plant them in the ground. What would happen if when you plant a dead body in the ground and then you water the field and then after a year or two, a new baby comes out of the ground? Ta-da! Welcome! Good morning! Good to see you again, right? That would be so strange to us because we're not used to that. But essentially, that's what happens with the fruits. You take an inedible pit or seed, you put it into the ground... And then you start watering it before you know it. You have something brand new. The only reason why one seems to us like such a miracle and such a fantasy, and the other one is just how things grow, the only difference between the two is one we're used to and one we're not used to. In fact, our sages tell us that the resurrection of the dead is essentially the expansion of agriculture to humans. That's what the resurrection of the dead is. It's where the concept of, or the miracle of agriculture extends to humans, all those humans that are buried in the ground, all those seeds of future humans are buried in the ground, are eventually going to sprout forth as brand new living beings. So the whole concept of agriculture is a miracle to us. And every seven years, we have... A whole year of super faith, super reliance on God. And this, this kind of mitzvah, is really emblematic of all the mitzvahs in general. They're all there to try to foster and create a feeling of connection and relationship between us and the Almighty. As always, my email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com.